1: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
2: Welcome to Episode 190 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is Mild Cognitive Impairment, Truly a Family Affair. With the ageing of the populations in North America, we're getting more and more concerned about dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease. We're getting concerned because this is a brain disease that can't be stopped, reversed or cured. It slowly destroys various brain things like memory and thinking, the ability to carry out even the simplest of tasks, and sometimes speech. So someone well down the road of Alzheimer's disease may not be able to communicate that they have, for example, a painful sore in their mouth. Instead, they become aggressive or even violent. And sometimes they lose even the ability to recognize members of their own family. So if I can put it this way, it's encouraging news that there is a memory condition that is mild, which is why our topic, mild cognitive impairment, truly a family affair, is so important. To discuss it, our guest is Dr. Nicole Anderson. Now, Nicole is a senior scientist at the Rotman Research Institute at Baycrest and an associate professor of psychology and psychiatry at the University of Toronto. She obtained her undergraduate degree in psychology from Washington University in St. Louis and her Masters and PhD from the University of Toronto. She's a registered clinical psychologist practicing in neuropsychology. She researches memory and attention interventions for healthy older adults, older adults with mild cognitive impairment and adults with acquired brain injuries. She's a principal investigator funded by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and she's published many research papers and book chapters in international journals on aging, cognition and neuropsychology. In 2012, she and doctors Kelly Murphy and Angela Troyer published... Living with Mild Cognitive Impairment, a Guide to Maximizing Brain Health and Reducing Risk of Dementia. So, welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you. Now, first question. Please tell us more about your work and also about any experience you've personally had with family caregiving.
3: Sure. Well, I am a research clinical neuropsychologist, and so in the course of my research, I'm often, often telling participants and their family members about the status of their cognitive functioning and what they can do about it. And I also helped Drs. Kelly Murphy and Angie Troyer develop and validate a clinical program for people with mild cognitive impairments and their family members. So this program targets not just the people who have mild cognitive impairment, but their family members as well. And more generally, my research focuses on protecting cognition, both in people who are aging healthfully as well as in those who are at elevated risk of developing dementia. And I try to do this by targeting the brain, the body, and more broadly, people's everyday living. So just to be, I guess, a bit more specific, um, targeting the brain, I'm just wrapping up a study where we're looking at the benefits of a memory training program. And this was motivated by the fact that uh, older adults who have super good memory, as good as young adults, use their brains differently. We know that already from some research that we have and others have done. And so what I'm asking is whether older adults whose memory is aging more typically, that is declining as a part of normal healthy aging, uh, whether memory training will help reorganize their brain activity and make them look more like the, the super older adults, if you will. Um, I'm also really interested in how we learn information and whether older adults can learn from their mistakes or whether these mistakes interfere with learning of uh, new information and with the brain activity that supports good learning. And then in terms of the body, I'm working in collaboration with a nutrition scientist and a couple of biomedical physicists uh, studying how two very common age-related disorders, hypertension and type 2 diabetes, affect cognitive functioning and brain health. And then finally, targeting everyday life, so kind of moving out from the brain to the body to everyday life, um, I have a study where we're looking at the health benefits of volunteering among older adults. And uh, there's already a lot of evidence showing that volunteering is good for you and good for your health, but what we're hypothesizing is that the more challenging somebody's volunteer role is in terms of its physical and cognitive and social complexity, the bigger the health benefits will be for these older adults.
2: Now, I want to follow on by asking you, what is mild cognitive impairment? That is the, uh, one of the areas you've been studying. And how actually does it relate, if at all, to dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Nicole?
3: Sure. Mild cognitive impairment, or MCI for short, so I, I will be using that abbreviation. This is a mouthful otherwise to keep saying mild cognitive impairment. Um, but in short, it's a, a boundary zone between normal aging and dementia. So that is, people with MCI have cognitive difficulties that go beyond those that we would expect due to normal, healthy aging, but they fall short of those that we see in people who have dementia. Um, Another critical distinction is that unlike people with dementia who, by criteria, have difficulties with activities of everyday living, um, people with MCI are capable of doing all the things that people with intact cognition can do. So they may find it more difficult to do really complex activities like filling out their tax forms or planning a complex trip through Europe, say. Uh, But with the proper supports, they can do these activities, and they certainly don't have any difficulties with more basic activities of daily living. Uh, There are different subtypes of MCI, and one of the critical distinctions is whether memory is affected or not. And when memory is affected, then it is called amnestic MCI. And people with this form or this type of MCI are at an elevated risk of developing Alzheimer's disease specifically. Um, So for example, some research that was put out by the Mayo Clinic uh, way back in 1999, uh, showed that 80% of people with amnestic MCI uh, developed Alzheimer's disease over a six year period uh, that they were observed. And that's really a considerably higher rate than the typical incidence of Alzheimer's disease that we see in older adults without cognitive impairment. In whom, over that same six-year period, about 12% would develop Alzheimer's disease. So, uh, just to kind of complete the picture, some people with MCI go on to develop other forms of dementia other than Alzheimer's disease. So, they might develop frontal temporal lobe dementia or vascular dementia or some other form. But, importantly, not everybody diagnosed with MCI does develop dementia. Some people continue to have this mild level of cognitive impairment for a long period of time and never progress to dementia. And other people who test or meet criteria for MCI at one time point later on test in the normal range. And so that's part of the the diagnostic challenge there.
2: Now let's ask you, please, about your book, Living with Mild Cognitive Impairment. Please tell us about that.
3: Sure. Uh, Well, as you mentioned, I wrote this book with my colleagues, Dr. Kelly Murphy and Angela Troyer. And I guess another name for it could be Everything You Need to Know About MCI, Um, because we really do talk about everything that you can imagine. Uh, We explain what MCI is. We explain how it differs both from normal aging and from dementia, various forms of dementia. Uh, We talk about what the risk factors are for MCI, how MCI is diagnosed, so the step-by-step procedures that you would go through uh, to become diagnosed, uh, how it affects both the person living with MCI as well as their loved ones. And then we give a whole bunch of information uh, to help guide a range of healthy lifestyle factors that help improve prognosis. Uh, So these include diet and exercise, cognitive activity, social engagement, as well as a number of very practical everyday memory strategies that help to improve memory functioning. The book also has questions to ask your doctor in most of the chapters to help people plan ahead of the doctor's appointment and have a a more effective conversation, as well as recommended readings and links to helpful websites. And really, the book was inspired by a surprise. Um, Over the course of the years of our working with people who come in for our research or clinical services that we have diagnosed with MCI, They've asked us what what books that we would recommend. And finally, one day, I sat down to actually look at what was out there and peruse bookstore websites. And what I expected to find was what I find for a lot of other conditions, including dementia. And that is um, hundreds, dozens or hundreds of books, uh, some of them written by highly respected clinicians and academic leaders in the field, but mixed in with a lot of other books of more questionable um, authority, if you will. And I intended to go back to this person with a a list of recommended readings for them. But what I found really shocked me. I found a handful of excellent academic books on MCI that I already had and had read, but not a single book written for a lay audience. And so I met with my co-author, Dr. Troyer. I went into her office. I said, Angie, do you realize that there are no lay books on MCI? And she said, I know. I know. And then I said, well, we've got to write one. And that's how the book came about.
2: In other words, this was an on-demand book, wasn't it? That is to say, people were asking you. You looked around, didn't find what you thought they needed, and you got down to writing a book which was aimed, I, I think I'm right in saying this, correct me if I'm not, aimed at people with mild cognitive impairment, and also people who are living with people with mild cognitive impairment. Is that right? That's exactly
3: right. As well as, I'd say, for healthcare professionals who treat them, but who might not encounter mild cognitive impairment that often and not know that much about it. Um, and as you said, we did write it because people were asking us for information, and when I looked, we could not find it out there. So that's exactly why we did that.
2: Now, that really stresses a point. I'm going to make very quickly, that I hear time and time again on this radio show, Nicole, and that is that the first thing that people want when they're confronted with what I call a diagnosis, that is, somebody in your profession has said, this and this affects you, this and this affects your family member, um, it kind of rolls over them in a, in a way that leaves them thinking about the minds racing, thinking about the future. And what then, when they get home, they need is something to read so they can put it all together. And it seems to me that what you've done in writing your book, Living with Mild Cognitive Impairment, is to answer that need. So thank you very much. Now, it is time... Uh, where we have to take our break, so I'm going to do that now. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, and my guest is Dr. Nicole Anderson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We will be back.
4: and Wellness Network.
1: Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety.
4: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voice
1: America.com You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to the listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Nicole Anderson. Our topic is mild cognitive impairment, truly a family affair. So let's talk about mild cognitive impairment or as you call it, Nicole, MCI and the challenges that it creates in diagnosis and treatment. The challenges for the persons who experience it, and the challenges that it creates for families and family caregivers. So first off, Nicole, what are the main challenges in diagnosing and treating mild cognitive impairment? Well,
3: I alluded to one of the challenges in diagnosing MCI earlier, and that's the fact that some people who meet criteria for mild cognitive impairment at one time point may never develop dementia. Or on a later test, they test within the normal range. And you can imagine how this poses a challenge to clinicians, because we have to tell people that they are at a higher risk of developing dementia, but they may not develop it. So that, that's really a challenge to deliver that message in a way that's useful for people. And there are a number of reasons why this might occur, but I think that they all boil down to us missing one or more important pieces in the context in which those initial deficits occur. So a diagnosis of MCI requires that the cognitive difficulties that they're currently experiencing uh, represent a change from a prior level of functioning. But what we're actually faced with is often people are coming in and being tested for the first time in their life, and so we don't really have a good measure of what their current level of functioning was. And this makes it very important to both listen to the person who's been diagnosed with MCI, and their family members' uh, impressions of changes that have occurred. And I emphasize the family members here as well because uh, sometimes the person who's experiencing the mild cognitive impairments isn't fully aware of the changes that have occurred. And it's also critical, just to get a little bit more specific about diagnosis, it's critical for us as neuropsychologists to compare clients' current performance against some kind of estimate of where we think their prior level of cognitive functioning was, and not just to uh, relate it to test norms. So test norms uh, provide us with data telling us what to expect on any given test from, from people depending on their age, um, and by definition, norms apply to typical or average people. But what we face with a lot is people who are not typical or average. They're either incredibly intelligent and probably have functioned way above average or they're of lower functioning throughout their whole lives. And so the norms, the the average, doesn't necessarily apply to them. And so we have to take this into account and not just blindly rely on the norms that are provided with the tests. And also um, a host of medical and emotional conditions can affect cognition particularly if they're poorly treated. So these things include uh, things like diabetes, prior concussions or head trauma, depression or anxiety, and learning disabilities. And so it's critical that we as neuropsychologists know all of this information when we're making that diagnosis. Uh, The primary challenge in treating MCI is the fact that there is no treatment for it. There's no medical treatment or drug treatment for MCI. Scientists are working on ways to stop the pathology that eventually leads to dementia. But even when that day comes, I argue that it still will be critical to encourage people uh, to engage in the myriad of lifestyle choices that research has shown relate to good brain health and lower dementia risk.
2: Nicole, we're going to come back to some of those things uh, uh, later later in this episode. But now I want to ask you about the main challenges that mild cognitive impairment creates for the people who are affected by it. That is to say, the person who maybe you've given the diagnosis to, or maybe you're thinking that the diagnosis is there. What are the kind of challenges that those people are experiencing? Well, I
3: think the biggest challenge that comes along with the diagnosis is... Uh, the reframing of one's future so we all have a picture of what our later years are going to be like what our retirement is going to be like and when you get a diagnosis like that like this obviously that whole frame completely changes and understandably this is really difficult news and what we find is that it takes people a few weeks to a few months to really process the implications of this diagnosis uh, but the majority of people seem to come out the other side of that, that process and make adjustments in their lives to manage their cognitive difficulties better and assume healthier, more proactive approaches in their fight against further cognitive decline. But along the way, I have to say that it's not uncommon uh, for people diagnosed with MCI to experience mood changes. So there, were, there was a, a meta-analysis or a way of combining findings from across research studies that was published in 2008 that found that the most common symptoms experienced by people with MCI were depression, apathy, anxiety, and irritability. And this really underscores the need to treat the mental health of people with MCI along with us treating their cognitive difficulties. And moreover, Dr. Murphy's own research research has shown that people with MCI are prone to withdrawing from socially and cognitively engaging activities in their everyday lives and this is exactly the opposite of what we know is good for good brain health um, that is that we should be engaging in socially and cognitively challenging activities um, you know people withdraw from them partly out of fear that they'll be found out in those settings people will notice their cognitive difficulties um, but probably also the apathy and depression help limit people from engaging in those activities. So, again, the message is that we need to attend to and address the mental health issues of people with MCI. And one, one recommendation that we make is that people consider joining groups or activities um, along with a family member or a friend to help navigate the interactions that they might encounter in those settings.
2: Now, let's, still on the theme of challenges that MCI creates, um, let's please ask you about um, the, the challenges for families and family caregivers. And in particular, what are the warning signals that you would recommend them to look out for in regard to these challenges?
3: Nicole? Sure. Um, yeah, family members, <coughs> first of all, they also go through. That adjustment period uh, after the diagnosis. So they too had a picture of what mom or dad's later years would be like or what their spouses, their, their time with their spouse would be like in the later years. And everything changes when this diagnose, diagnosis comes along. And that uncertainty about the future is difficult for family members to bear, for sure. Um, but other more subtle changes can occur too. So family members often experience. Uh, changes in fi- family dynamics that can affect their own emotional health too. So, for example, they um, often feel the need to assume more roles or responsibilities in the in the family, um, and this can be quite stressful. So, for example, a family member, say a spouse, might feel the need to start supervising their loved one with MCI more closely, so checking to make sure that the bills have been paid correctly or or that the person with MCI has taken their medications correctly. And this assumption of new roles can add stress and burden to family members. Um, people, family members also find themselves getting frustrated sometimes with their loved one's memory slips or their mood changes, and sometimes they become resentful that this is even happening uh, in their lives when they didn't ask for it or expect it. And so for all of these reasons, Any kind of programs or resources that are out there for people with MCI should also have a component where they're helping the family member of somebody with MCI so that they can learn more about MCI and help themselves and uh, their loved ones with MCI cope more effectively with that. In terms of warning signs, as you asked, um, really what you want to look for is any change in your physical or emotional health. Um, so if you're suddenly facing something that you never had before, uh, such as elevated blood pressure, problems sleeping, uh, problems with depression or anxiety, any of these things that come on, as I said, that you don't have a history of can be signs that, that looking after your loved one with MCI is becoming an issue for you. And we need to attend to family members' health just as much as the health of the person with MCI uh, so that they can best support the, the whole family through the journey with MCI.
2: Nicole, just to go back to your what you were talking about, the challenge of knowing what sort of change there's been. You were talking about this in uh, regard to people like you making a diagnosis by Trying to measure or attempting to measure how much change there's been mm-hmm. and you were saying looking at the the statistical norms isn 't very helpful because you really didn 't know where people were in relation to that before that all this started, so that leads me to a question which is how much reliance do you put on the families As, sort of estimate of the degree of change in their family member. How valuable is that information to you in making the diagnosis?
3: Well, I, I find that it can be very, very helpful. So oftentimes um, the family members provide more information or more examples of what's been going on. Um, but it, that's not always the case because just like you and I wouldn't ever want to face MCI or dementia, Family members don't want to face it either in their loved ones. And so what can happen sometimes is that family members will minimize the changes that have been occurring. And they'll say, oh, yeah, well, he's always been like this, or all my friends make that same mistake too. And so it's, it's kind of difficult sometimes to tell whether the report that you're getting back um, is, is a- accurate. However, in terms of the test norms, um, One thing that we know is that IQ is very tightly correlated with other cognitive functions, usually in most cases, if people don't have a learning disability or some other condition. And so instead of using the test norms, we can use IQ as a better benchmark, too, for where we expect their memory or their attention or their language functioning to lie. So there's ways of getting around the limitations with test norms, too.
2: Right. Now... Talking of norms, it's time for us to take the break once more. This is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Dr. Nicole Anderson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. (music)
4: Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Tune into Around the World in a Glass, presented by Sportsman's. We're a show all about wine, spirits, and other beverages. Your host, Kimber Stonehouse, is a professional expert and wine enthusiast. Each week, we'll focus on a different region of the world, discuss wines and other beverages, talk about some of the top restaurants in the region, and what to pair with which wine. Just listening could make you almost an expert. Around the World in a Glass is heard live every Wednesday at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc g at family dot now back to family caregivers unite
2: welcome back to our listeners to family caregivers unite and dr nicole anderson our topic is mild cognitive impairment truly a family affair now nicole i want to talk with you or You talk with us, please, about the ways in which the challenges created by mild cognitive impairment are most successfully confronted so that it can be lived with, obviously lived with by the people who are challenged by MCI, but also their families and the communities they're with. So what is, first of all, Nicole, for you, what is the outlook for mild cognitive impairment? Um, Outlook, as you very well know, is a word that's often used in medicine my, and healthcare. It also means prognosis. Um, and how can outlook be improved with treatments aimed or whatever, um, preventive measures aimed at maximizing brain health and at reducing the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's disease? Now, that's a, a rather convoluted question, but what I'm really trying to ask you is, uh, how, do you, how is the future for an individual judged? And what about the actions and treatments and so on that you aim at maximizing brain health so that the prognosis is improved to the extent it can be?
3: Okay, uh, well as I mentioned towards the start, unfortunately the, the majority of people who receive a diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment do go on to develop some form of dementia. And that, that's not that surprising when you really consider what mild cognitive impairment is um, because it really is, in many cases, the preclinical, as we say, form of different dementias, where people's symptoms are not severe enough yet to meet criteria for dementia, but the brain pathology associated with those dementias has started already. So there are a number of things that have been shown, though, to help improve outlook or improve prognosis, that is, reduce the risk of uh, progressing from the mild cognitive impairment state to dementia. Um, I wanted, though, just to start by talking about what doesn't work um, before we talk about what does work. And as I said before, there are no drug treatments approved um, for people with MCI. Uh, I get this question asked a lot. because they've heard of their friend who has MCI and their friend has received medications for it. And it is true that some physicians will choose to prescribe the medications that are prescribed in Alzheimer's disease, the drugs like donepezil, galatamine, and rivastigmine. Um, but studies have shown that there's no benefit of these drugs in large groups of people with MCI. Um, however, what that means is that in these large groups, these drugs have helped some people They've done nothing for other people, and people's cognitive functioning has declined in another group of people, so that overall, on average, there's no benefit of the medications. And so some doctors will prescribe these drugs anyway in the hopes that their patient might be one of the the, the lucky ones for whom these drugs do benefit memory or attention. And then the other thing that people see a lot um, in the media is they'll hear There'll be stories in the media about some particular vitamin or some particular food. So, you know, it might be vitamin E or blueberries or turmeric or whatever. It seems like every week there's something different, and people build up great hope that this is the next big promise that this will help prevent dementia. Uh, but the problem with these messages is that there is no magical cure, and no, nor will there ever will be a magical cure like this. So, because our bodies just don't work this way what leads to good brain health is the complementary and interactive effects of a variety of foods in in the context of a healthy diet. So yes, blueberries are healthy and they're good for you um, and they're important, but eating a pint of blueberries a day in the context of an otherwise high-fat, high-salt diet is not going to do anything for you. And so... Despite the fact that we don't have any treatments yet, drug treatments or any kind of magical nutritional cure for MCI, uh, there are a host of other lifestyle treatments, if you will, uh, that research shows help to maximize brain health and reduce the risk of dementia. And these studies have been conducted uh, in large populations of mainly healthy people, but evidence is starting to emerge that these same things help people with MCI too. And these include eating a healthy diet, getting exercise, and getting cognitive and social engagement.
2: Right. Nicole, I'm going to ask you more directly now the question about persons who know that they're affected by mild cognitive impairment. What can they do to successfully confront their challenges that MCI creates, creates for them?
3: Yeah, so to be more specific about these <coughs> lifestyle factors. Um, In terms of a healthy diet, uh, people should try to follow the daily dietary recommendations that our governments put out for us. And this means cutting back as much as you can on saturated fats that we in North America tend to eat way too much of and replacing them with unsaturated fats, things like olive oil, Um, cutting back on meat consumption and replacing it with more vegetables and fruits. Um, In terms of exercise, the Specific recommendations are to do um, at least a half an hour, five days a week of aerobic activity, anything that gets your heart pumping, and that can just be walking at fast enough of a pace that your heart is pumping. And I would say that um, above and beyond any other kind of evidence, the evidence is strongest uh, that aerobic exercise promotes good brain health, even, even any more than any of the other lifestyle factors. So we know that aerobic exercise improves the circulatory system of the body and the brain it leads to bigger brains so it, it's associated with growth in the amount of brain tissue uh, better cognitive functioning and even the growth of new neurons what they call neurogenesis so the birth of new neurons in the brain um, but for older adults it's important to combine aerobic exercise with strength training because strength training, training helps to maintain muscle mass and good bone health as as well as balance exercises, because these help to prevent falls. Uh, For staying socially and cognitively engaged, it really doesn't matter how you do this, as long as you're engaged in challenging activities that you enjoy. So uh, people can join a choir, they can volunteer, they can join communities or or groups at their church or synagogue or temple, learn how to play musical instruments, travel to new places. I mean, the, the list is virtually endless of ways that you can... Stay cognitively and socially engaged um, but also building into your life healthy memory practices so good good memory health if you will or hygiene uh, and uh, people are often afraid to use external aids like they'll, they'll say things to me like I don't want to write it down because then I'm not working out my brain and in fact the research shows that external aids do make your internal memory for information stronger so use these external aids to help support your memory system, especially among people with MCI whose internal memory is showing uh, decline, um, but also learn how to use the internal uh, memory strategies, memory tricks, and we describe a number of these in, in detail in the book.
2: Um, right. Yep. I'm just going to um, take you to the next question, but... If I interrupted you and you wanted to just carry on, please do so. But my next question to you will be, what is the role of family caregivers in successfully confronting the challenges? Um, and how do they, does the role of the family, family and family caregiver fit in with what you're advocating for the person affected by MCI?
3: Yeah, well, family members are really crucial in this whole journey um, with their loved one who has MCI. They're often, as I said, the first ones to notice the changes that are happening, uh, the cognitive changes, and they're often the ones to encourage the person to seek medical treatment in the first place. Um, And this is because the person with MCI might start accommodating for cognitive changes without even really realizing it. Um, So it's often the family member who notices the changes first, and they're the real catalyst for, for getting treatment. And it's also because they really are... On this journey together with their loved one with MCI, so it's just as important for family members to learn as much as they can about MCI, so that they can support their loved one um, in the best way possible and help them plan for the future. Um, they have uh, the other side. They have to realize too, um, an issue that comes up often is uh, family members getting frustrated with the person with MCI. And they have to remember that people with MCI are not forgetting things because they're getting mentally lazy or, or trying to annoy them or anything. So uh, they need to learn the, the best approach to their loved one with MCI, so not pushing them to remember things that they can't remember because uh, that's just going to increase stress levels and, and make things worse too. As I mentioned before, uh, family members may need to assume more roles or provide more support in ways that they didn't used to have to, uh, so taking over, paying the bills, or balancing the checkbook, and uh, as as I said, this can become a burden, especially if it's one person taking on all of these new roles too. So, to the extent that the whole family can chip in and, and take part in this, that will help too. Um, I, I just wanted to mention too. Future planning, having those difficult conversations with the person, with your loved one, with MCI. Uh, so this is a time, too, to think about the future, um, because if the time comes where managing living independently is no longer an option, it's important to have those conversations about where the person would like to go, what kind of care they would like to receive, who they would like to be their power of attorney, and issues like that.
2: Nicole, I'm going to just put in a plug for your book, Living with Mild Cognitive Impairment, and this is very straightforward. You wrote it because people wanted the kind of information that they could use, and the book I've looked at, it contains that information, and therefore, what they learn, among other things from the book is the way in which they need to understand what it is that their family member is, is affected by and it to deal with among the many challenges and one that you mentioned is getting frustrated with somebody who can't remember and uh-huh. knowing that it's not them just being awkward. Uh, it's That's the way this condition is. So I think that's a very powerful thing and uh, I want to say to to you, I'll say it again. Congratulations on writing the book because more, more of that kind of information is needed. Now I'm going to take the break because it is that time. Um, we have to pay the rent too. (coughs) This is, this is Dr. Gordon Atherley and my guest is Dr. Nicole Anderson. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America variety and empowerment channels and CJMP. 90.1 90.1 Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We will be back.
1: What's going on behind the scenes with your favorite Voice America show or host? For the latest news, visit the iRadio blog at iradioblog.com
4: the leader in internet talk radio voiceamerica.com
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Nicole Anderson. Our topic is mild cognitive impairment, truly a family affair. Now, I want to ask you, Nicole, about more things that you believe are needed to help confront the challenges of cognitive impairment which you've you've described to us. So, personal question now, what more do you want to do and to see them, to help people and their family caregivers confront the MCI challenges.
3: Yeah, uh, well, I guess what I would like to do is, if, if I had all the resources in the world, I would love to develop a multimodal approach uh, or intervention for people with MCI uh, where we can incorporate improvements Just, in fitness levels and diets and psychosocial health and memory strategies, putting it really all together uh, in a very active way. We, we, we're halfway there with our clinical program now, but it'd be nice to, to really round it all the way out. What, what I would like um, people to have available for people with MCI and their family give, uh, caregivers is uh, we're really fortunate to have a very rich network in America and Canada of the Alzheimer's Society or associations, and they provide incredible resources for people with information and support groups and links for help, and these groups are starting to attend to the preclinical phase or, or MCI, and I encourage them to, to keep expanding these efforts to help people who are at a higher risk of developing dementia, because right now the proportion of the efforts that go to that prevention side is, is relatively small, understandably, because they were, they were developed to address dementia proper. Um, I'm also I'm honored that ours was the first book written for people with MCI and their loved ones. But, but honestly, I look forward to some competition. Um, I want there one day to be lots of information and resources out there for people with MCI, so that they'll they'll have the range of choices that people with other conditions have.
2: And I suppose also other languages besides English.
3: Yes, yes, we have been approached uh, by someone who does want to translate it into French. So that's a good news there. Right.
2: Now, next question. All, all these questions are along the same lines. What do you want to do and see done by the clinical professions, such as yours, to help the people and their family caregivers confront MCI?
3: Well, that's a great question because in one part of the book, um, what I wanted to do was list all of the clinical programs that are currently available for people with MCI around the world so that the book would be useful for people no matter where they were. And we spent literally months scouring the Internet and papers looking for clinical programs and emailing hundreds of people. And shockingly, we could find only five programs that are going on uh, that, that we could find through our hunts. There might be more, but we, we tried our hardest to find them. We found three in Canada, one in the U.S., and one in Germany. Uh, sure, there are hundreds of support groups for people with dementia, but people with mild cognitive impairment have different issues and really deserve to have their own programs that are targeted towards MCI. And part of the problem is in the way that our research and healthcare systems work. So most hospitals and community centers don't have the resources to support the research needed to develop and evaluate new clinical programs. And most universities and research centers don't have the resources needed to support the ongoing delivery of new programs that they've created. And so we found many articles reporting on successful cognitive rehabilitation programs for people with MCI, but when I contacted the authors of these papers, they said that the program ended as soon as the research funding dried up. And so somehow we've got to bridge this gap between the researchers who are developing effective clinical programs and the healthcare system that's out there. Uh, hopefully to, develop, uh, to deliver these programs for people with MCI. And also, um, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, re- universities and hospitals and, and Alzheimer's societies and chapters, but there are a lot of people living out in remote areas without access to these kind of centers. But now, in today's age with the Internet, there's really no reason why we can't be delivering these programs. Um, over the Internet with programs like Skype-like programs where people are meeting virtually and getting the information that they need and having the opportunity to discuss the challenges that they're facing and the successes that they've had, too. And then finally, just a plug for research funding. You know, we, um, we know how expensive both economically and the personal costs of dementia are, and we know that... these expenses are just going to uh, escalate uh, dramatically in the coming years. So the more that we know about MCI and how to delay progression to to dementia, the better our society will be. So I really encourage governments to keep funding this kind of work.
2: Nicole, just a quick editorial comment. You're making that appeal at a time when money is getting tighter and tighter in in healthcare. So it's important, isn't it, that this message... Uh, about the importance of MCI and the way in which things can be done uh, needs to be got out. And what you're call- talking about is research, figuring out what's best, what works well, what works not so well, so that everybody can be guided um, in, a, in a way that's going to be useful and helpful to everyone concerned, including society as a whole. Now, my last question to you, Nicole, is this. Um, I want you to give your personal message, please, to persons confronting MCI and for the family caregivers, um, because i I like to think that you i 'd like to put you in the role perhaps of a politician who 's making a platform, a political appeal for support to introduce a government policy towards MCI And you're speaking now to persons and their families about what it is you're going to do. So what is your message for them?
3: Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, Ironically enough, I did speak at Parliament Hill to a number of MPs and senators about this issue. And I, I think the focus really is on preventing that massive economic and psychological burden that is dementia and that The mild cognitive impairment window provides us that window of opportunity to get in there and intervene and improve people's physical health and their brain health and their cognitive health. Uh, And what we're doing there is not necessarily uh, changing the underlying brain pathology, but what the research shows is that it's elevating people's level of functioning so that even if the brain pathology is brewing in their brains. People are functioning better and therefore have farther to fall, basically. It buys people time where they're living healthfully, and in the case of mild cognitive impairment, they're living independently and enjoying their lives and with their loved ones. Um, You know, really a key word in mild cognitive impairment is the mild aspect of it. Um, MCI does not rob people of their intellectual skills, of their talents, or of their humor, And so we have to remember that uh, people with mental cognitive impairment are the same as they ever were. So, you know, dad is still dad, mom is still mom, and that hasn't changed.
2: Nicole, there's a phrase that circulates in my circles in our family, and it goes, if you don't use it, you lose it. I don't know quite what it's referring to, but how much even a half-truth is there in that slogan?
3: There's actually quite a lot of evidence for that in the cognitive literature, so um, the more you work at something in terms of a cognitive talent, the better you get at it, and it's not negatively affected by healthy aging, it'll be more robust to mild cognitive impairment or dementia, Uh, and and it provides a general um, structure or support for overall cognitive health, too. And one of the great examples of that is some work done on bilingualism, done by uh, Professors Bialystok and Craig uh, in Toronto. And what they found is that people who are lifelong bilinguals speaking every day in two different languages and going back and forth between the two, they develop dementia and MCI um, an average of about four and a half years later than monolingual people do. And then, And the notion here is that Going back and forth between two languages is a mental workout in, in multitasking. Um, and that kind of exercise on a daily basis, mental exercise helps to build up cognitive reserve, brain reserve, uh, that allows you to withstand a greater degree of brain pathology before you develop, before you have the symptoms of dementia. And so that's just right. one example of use it and you'll benefit from it.
2: <laughs> Great. Now, Unfortunately, we've come to the end of this, I may say, exciting uh, episode of Family Caregivers Unite. I want to say thank you to Doc- Dr. Nicole Anderson for all the things she said with us, and particularly her messages, and particularly her confirmation that there are things that can be done to stave off, there are things that are helpful, and that information for families and persons uh, is enormously important in other words it isn't waiting for the drug to be invented if it ever is it's getting on with the challenge right now and that's a powerful message i want to say thank you to our listeners we'd like to hear your comments on this episode and from our listeners i'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show in our next episode we'll talk about wills powers of attorney and family caregivers please join us same time same spot on the internet talk to you then
1: thank you again for joining us this week for family caregivers unite with your host dr gordon Atherley. please tune in again next tuesday at 10 a.m pacific time 1 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel and until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do
0: appreciate you being mine.